Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 46, with Julie Austin talking about inventing swiggies. An entrepreneur will spot opportunities everywhere, and there is opportunity to make money everywhere. You just have to look for it. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today is an award-winning author, inventor, futurist, and innovation keynote speaker. She's an internationally known thought leader on the topic of innovation and CEO of the consulting firm Creative Innovation Group. She's been an innovation keynote speaker for corporations such as Procter & Gamble, Novartis Pharmaceuticals, Northrop Grumman, and Cognizant Technology Solutions. She's also been featured in the books Patently Female and Girls Think of Everything. Her patented product, Swiggies, wristwater bottles have been a NASDAQ product of the year semifinalist and are currently sold in 24 countries. Julie and her products have appeared on the Today Show, the Queen Latifah Show, HGTV, Lifetime, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, and the Wall Street Journal, along with dozens of TV shows, magazines, and radio shows around the world. Without further ado, Julie Austin. Hi, Greg. That is a mouthful. That is. <laughs> it sounds like I'm really busy, doesn't it? I think you are. <laughs> So, Julie, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Well, um, you know, obviously a lot has changed <laughs> and everything has changed in the past two years. Um, I, I went from going 110 miles an hour to, you know, nothing to zero and um, being in the live event industry and running multiple businesses, it just was crushing. I mean, you know, things have happened before. I, I speak on disruptive innovation. So, you know, things happen all the time. We go through recessions and, you know, all kinds of things happen, technology. But this, I think, threw everybody for a loop, don't you? Oh, yeah. We had to uh, do things at, at- at my work that we would never have considered, like having people take their desktops home. We didn't have enough laptops to go around. So yeah, I definitely think that that threw everybody for a loop. In case you're listening to this in 20 years from now, we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, also um, back in 2008, you know, something similar happened and it kind of, everything just kind of crashed and burned and, um, <clears throat> That's when I started, I wrote the book, The Money Garden, How to Plant the Seeds for a Lifetime of Income. And that's what happened before that was that I had one invention, one product. It was doing fantastic. I was flying around the world, going back and forth to the factory, you know, having orders that, you know, I, I've never made that much money in my life. It was, I kept looking at my bank account going, wow, what, is that real? <laughs> um, and then that crashed and burned overnight. The same thing happened. So um, that's when I wrote the book for other people, but also I wrote it for myself to remind myself 
to always have multiple streams of income and never put all your eggs in one basket. Okay. What are some of the multiple streams of, of uh, income that you advise people to get into? Well, I always tell people, you know, start with, and, and this is the advice I was giving myself. Um, and this was back in 2008. And I said, well, you know, what is my background? What do I know how to do? What am I good at? And I come from an entertainment background, um, a TV and film background. So I said, well, <clears throat> I'm a writer and a performer, but you can't exactly just go uh, do that, <laughs> like stand on a street corner. I guess you could, but, um, it, you know, it, it's a little bit different when you're in a movie or a TV show. But if you're a speaker, that's quite different. And so I put those two together and started becoming a speaker. And that's something I'd never considered before. And nope. I did that until <laughs> the past two years. And then I just never imagined that that would come to a, a grinding halt. So, I mean, I'm always, always thinking of, okay, what happens if this industry goes under? What else do I have that I can, uh, you know, can jump into? And that a lot of that is using your own background. Like, what are you good at? What's your background? And, and a lot of people are not using it, which is really surprising to me. And I go, I, you know, when I kind of pull things out of them, I go, why are you not using that skill and talent that you have to create a business? Yeah, I think a lot of people just either take it for granted or they're just so burned out by their day job that they don't even want to consider something that they already do as a secondary side hustle. Well, a lot of uh, side hustles. And, and also, I would really, really recommend that anybody who is going to go start their own business, <clears throat> if you already have a job, is to keep that job because that's income. And then, you know, I know it's a lot of work. I know it's, you know, time consuming, but in your free time, whatever it is, start working on something that is yours, that you can do that doesn't depend on anybody else. Okay. That's good advice. Now, growing up, did you come from an entrepreneurial or an inventor's background? Did anyone in your family uh, invent anything or have their own business while you're growing up? That is a good question. My grandmother ran a country store. This is, you're in North Carolina, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, in Siler City in between, you know, Raleigh and uh, Charlotte. And it was in the middle of nowhere. She was a 17-year-old orphan, had no money, no education, <clears throat> no experience at all. And she walked into a bank and she said, if you give me a loan, I will pay you back, you know, a penny per gallon of gas. So she wanted to open a gas station grocery store. She said, I'll pay you back a penny per gallon until the loan is paid off. And she had no collateral. She had no credit back then. And they said, yes. And she said, oh, yeah. And by the way, I want to build a house next to it and I need some land. 
Can you imagine doing that today? Wow. Uh, she had some moxie. I will give her that. And uh, moxie wasn't the first word that came up. Okay. She she used to sleep with a machete under her pillow. So, yeah, she um she was something else. <laughs> you have to be very careful waking grandma up. <laughs> But you know she she lived there by herself and 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 ran the store, and um, I I don't know how she even learned how to do it, you know because it weren't it's not like she had any education in it. I I don't know how she did it. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because you know obviously no internet, you know no books that I'm aware of teach you how to start a country store back then. I wonder if she had a mentor or somebody that gave her a lot of advice or if she just gutted it out. I don't know. I don't, I think she just figured it all out. And I guess she probably went, well, people have to have gas. So, you know, and they got to have food. And that was way, way before all the box stores, the big box stores. And even when the big box stores came to town Everybody still went to her store because she had built, and this is a, a, you know, something that she learned about customer service. I mean, she really gave her people great customer service. And I watched her when I was a little kid. She used to let me, you know, she'd put some, uh, stack some boxes up behind the counter and would let me ring people up. And, you know, when I was a little baby, I guess I was entertaining <laughs> entertaining the customers and I wear costumes or something. And this is going to sound crazy, but um, I don't know. I found some pictures and uh, it's like, I guess that was the entertainment though. While my mom went off and, and worked for the day. I was going to ask you if you were close, but it sounds like you were and you got to, to work with her. That was pretty cool. Yeah. From the time I was a little kid. So I kind of grew up around that, but she is really, except for my other cousin, the only one in my entire family on both sides that ever ran a business. What did your cousin do? They have like a parking lot sweeper business. Okay. And so when all the big box stores came into town, they went to the owner or the the manager and said, look, you know, you're sweeping this up with a broom. <laughs> we have this heavy duty machinery. Why don't you pay us to go in and, and sweep up the parking lot? And that's how they started. So you know what is finding an opportunity. It's a good thing you brought that up because you have to, an entrepreneur will spot opportunities everywhere. And there is opportunity to make money everywhere. You just have to look for it. Okay. Now let's talk about your invention, Swiggies. What inspired you to invent it? And I guess probably backing up even a little bit from that. um, Can you tell the audience what a Swiggy is? They are wrist water bottles. And the reason I came up with them, I was in Texas uh, visiting my dad. It was in the middle of the summer. It was blazing hot. And I went out running and I had no water with me. And I thought, okay, I'll drink enough water. You know, I'm carrying my keys and music and I just didn't have anywhere to keep a water bottle. And then I ended up passing out from dehydration, which wasn't smart, but 
people in Texas are friendly and uh, someone took me to the hospital and I'm thinking, wow, that was kind of dumb. Um, <laughs> I should probably have water next time, but you know, what if there's a way to keep it hands-free? And then I realized if it's on your wrist, that's, that's hands-free. Mm-hmm. And then I can have my music and my keys and whatever. And, um, I thought, you know, surely somebody has come up with this idea. And so I did a lot of research and did not find anything. And then I went to the, um, through the patent office, couldn't find anything. So I went, hmm, maybe I should just invent this myself. And um, that's what I started doing. So how did you create a, a prototype for it? The prototype was made out of clay and a an off-the-shelf cap and uh, a, just a regular like band. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, it was kind of like a, a felt or something. I mean, that's the thing about prototypes. You can just go to your local art store and put stuff together with popsicle sticks and styrofoam just so you have, you know, something that you can show because mm-hmm. people, you can tell people all day long, it's a wrist water bottle and they won't get it. But when you show it to them, even with the prototype, the clunky clay prototype people went oh now i get it and even more so once i made the product then they were able to get it but no and and not only that but today we have um you know you don't have to go through the entire patent process like i did you can get a provisional patent for peanuts i mean it costs almost nothing mm-hmm. it costs almost nothing to do a prototype so it's way, way easier and way cheaper because I had to, it had to go through the patent office twice. And that's quite often how it, it works. They don't give it to you the first time. And um, finally, I, I got the patent and then said, okay, now what? <laughs> there was no shark tank when I started. And I said, well, I guess I have to get a get the product made, get a mold made and took that, took that little clay prototype to a mold maker and said, here, can you make this? And luckily they, it worked the first time. That's pretty incredible that you got it to work the first time. It really is. <laughs> now the first time that it was rejected by the patent office, did they give you any kind of feedback as to why, or they just stamp it rejected? I don't remember. Um, I, I honestly don't remember why they rejected it. They usually, it, I mean, it usually happens the first time. And so it was an enormous amount of money that I had to pay the first time. And then I had to pay that again. And they said, are you sure you want to go through this? Cause I don't think it's going to go through. And I said, no, let's go for it. <laughs> Let me I'll sell my car. I'll max out my credit cards. And literally I was working two and three jobs, maxing out credit cards. It was, you know, you've heard this, these stories before from crazy inventors that we do all kinds of things to, to get our product on the market. So you were all in at that point. Well, at some point, you put in too much money <laughs> and you can't back out. Gotcha. So you got the, uh, the patent back. It was approved. 
What were your next steps? I had to get a trademark. So um, came up with a name, the name Hydrosport. And then I, you know, it was just a, a series of steps of, okay, now I have a name. I have a finished product. I guess I have to get some packaging. And then I um, went to a friend of mine who had a manufacturing company and he loaned me some of his packaging. I bought the rest of them, which didn't really fit the product. And I had to sit here in the in my living room and glue them together. If I showed you, I still have one of those and it is so awful looking. (laughs) I can't believe they were on a store shelf anywhere because it looks terrible, but I did get a lot of orders and uh, you know, you have to get the, uh, it's called a header card for Mm -hmm. the packaging. And then you have to get all kinds of, I mean, uh, there, there are just all kinds of things you have to do with the packaging and the, uh, and then after I got that done, um, I just literally put them in my car and started driving door to door. Oh wow! <laughs> so, this is how crazy and naive I was. So how did you get it manufactured? Wow. So the first ones that I manufactured, Um, I'm in Los Angeles and I, you know, found a local manufacturer here that would do them because that way I could drive to their, uh, location and kind of keep it all together. And then, you know, the bottles had to be done differently than the bands and the caps. So I had to get all three of those pieces in different places and then put, right. And then I had to put them together. So that's the tricky part. But so that it originally cost me a lot of money to have them manufactured here. Way too much because I finally realized, okay, if I manufacture here, I'm not going to make any money. And then I started looking for overseas manufacturing. And I happened to be at a trade show and there was a guy, um, who was, I don't know, he had some kind of fitness product. And I went up to him at the booth and I said, who's your manufacturer? These are really, you know, this is great quality. And he said, my manufacturer's in Malaysia. And he said, I can put you in touch with him. And so I contacted him and I said, you know, obviously you have to buy in large volume when you buy overseas. Um, But Again, being the insane person that I was, I said, okay, let's start with 50,000. 50,000. I had no idea how I was going to sell 50,000. Where were you storing 50,000? I had to rent a U-Haul truck, a gigantic truck, and and get a warehouse, obviously not in LA, it was too expensive. And I had to drive all the way out, I don't even remember where it was, like the like the industrial area. Mm-hmm. And I put them in the warehouse. And then I said, How am I gonna sell these? <laughs> so again, you were all in at this point. <laughs> yeah, do not uh, this is a word of advice, do not do what I did. So you were you were going through and selling these, you know, 
door to door and people are buying them individually. Um, when did you start getting, um, you know, like mass quantity orders? Well, <clears throat> when I say door to door, um, I actually went store to store. Yeah. But I mean, I literally would walk in and say, you know, or who, who is the buyer and, you know, what kind of products are you buying and that kind of thing. And I, and I, somebody luckily told me to put them in a POP, which is a point of purchase display mm -hmm. and make it look really presentable. So that's what I did. And I literally walked in and, um, just to all, all like chain drugstores, grocery stores, 7-Elevens, um, car washes, any place that I could, gift shops. And that's really how it started. Sporting goods stores, sporting goods chains. There was one out here. Um, I think they went under, I don't remember, but um, it, it was a decent sized chain of sporting goods stores. Now I've gotten them in all of these stores. Sounds great, right? It does until, you know, I'm assuming returns could be an issue or people actually holding payment until they sell. Well, that's what Walmart does. Mm -hmm. So the big box stores will, that's why you never, ever, ever want to go to Walmart first, because um, if they don't sell, you're going to get them back mm -hmm. and you're going to have to be the bank for several months. So um, that was another thing. Luckily, I didn't go that far, but I did do this with chain stores and I had enough inventory. Obviously, I had 50,000 of them, but um, that's not enough for Walmart, but it was enough for, for all of these chain stores. And um, But the thing is, I decided one day to go check them out. Like, oh, look at me, I've got a product in a store <laughs> and I walk in and guess what? There, the box is upside down on the bottom shelf in the back of the store. That's not going to wow. sell. Yeah. Nobody knows what the product is and nobody can even find it because the box is turned upside down. And then I found out that they don't service the stores, you have to have your independent reps to go in and service the stores. Ouch. <laughs> I did not. This is a big, big, big lesson I learned. I did not know that. So at that point, did you become an independent rep or a dependent rep, I guess, or did you actually, or did you have to hire, hire people at that point? I, well, I did hire one rep and she was fantastic. And she was in Hawaii, so she covered, you know, a lot of territory out there. And, you know, she just, she would go in, she'd get the order, and I'd just ship it. And then she'd service all the accounts um, until she retired. But so I would, if I had to do it all over again, I would start online. For some reason, I didn't know how to do it online. I didn't know how to use Amazon. I didn't know anything about anything. I just thought, okay, I have a product. I'm going to go get it in a store. And that's well, all I knew. Was Amazon a around when you started it or more than a book sale, bookseller at that point? 
Um, yeah, but it wasn't really, um, you know, it wasn't what it is now, Mm -hmm. but they were selling products. Yeah. I'm thinking you probably would have had to have had a lot more, um, I guess technology, um, investment at that point to have sold online. It, It, it's not like it is now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe I shouldn't beat myself up too much, but, um, yeah, I just, in these days I would say do it online and that way you take away a lot of the, you know, expense and headache of getting them into stores. Although I got them into a few, um, chain stores that ordered over and over and over again for probably 10 years. That's pretty good. Yeah. So have retail, has that been your biggest customer market? base? Yeah, <laughs> market. Yes. Thank you. No, nope, definitely uh, not. What, what's, what's been your biggest market? Well, I'll tell you another story. I was doing trade shows and I just thought, okay, it's a sporting goods product. That's just the way I looked at it. And I would go to these sporting goods shows and not really get very much interest. And I, it was kind of disheartening. And I thought, well, you know, it, it won, an, it, it not won, but it was a semifinalist in the NASDAQ mm-hmm. uh, competition. And NASDAQ had a big party for all of us. And, you know, that was great, but the buyers weren't really buying. And so I was kind of disillusioned and I said, okay, I'm going to try one more show. And there was something called action sports. I think something like that. And I, you know, loaded up my car. I got my booth ready and opening day. I was right next to a skateboard ramp with the music blasting (laughs) so you couldn't hear anybody talk. And I realized really quickly, this is not my audience at all. And I probably lasted about an hour or two. And then I just said, okay, that's it. (laughs) I was just in tears. I went, okay, I'm going to, no, I'm packing up. And I started to leave and I saw this guy who was packing his, his booth up. And I said, well, why are you leaving? He said, this is not my market. I said, well, it's not mine either. And we just walked the show together. And he said, you know what your product is? It's a promotional product. I said, what's that? He said, you know, like hats and mugs and pens and T-shirts that companies put their logo on and give them away. And I said, I don't know that much about it. And he said, okay, well, I have a show next week in Vegas. If you want to come out, you know, just bring your stuff and you can have a little corner of my booth and you can kind of test it and see what happens. And so I went out there and walked into the show and I got mobbed in the aisles. I I, I was just shocked. Everybody goes, what is that? What is it? Where'd you get it? And I couldn't even get to the booth. There were so many people stopping me and I realized, okay, this is my market. And I didn't, and then I had, uh, you know, had the product at the booth and everyone wanted a sample. See, that's the thing. You have to give out samples. And I didn't really have 
tons of samples. I ran out of all of the samples and all my cards. And this is how I sold almost a million of these. That makes sense then. Yeah, it was total serendipity. Oh, not only that, but I'm getting ready to leave the show and I'm walking through, you know, the hotel or something and I and I this guy stops me and he said, "If you got 5 minutes, I'll tell you how to sell a bunch of those." And I said, "Okay, <laughs> it worked before." <laughs> and he said, uh, "It's called the Hash House Harriers. Have you ever heard of them?" Uh, this is a family show now. Well, it's a (laughs) (laughs) the Hash House Harriers is a what do they call it? A running club, a a drinking club with a running problem. (laughs) Put it so they drink beer and run from keg to keg. Okay, and I've never heard of this in my life. He said people are running around with open cups of beer spilling their beer and he said this is perfect you just open it up and fill it with beer and then run to the next keg and i went wow he said they have one every night somewhere in the world it is huge so now i sell maybe like 20 percent of my sales are in the alcohol industry wow 20 percent Yeah. So these are things you never, ever know until you actually open your business and start running it. You don't really know who your customers are going to be. You think you know. See, if I had written a business plan, it would have been (laughs) obsolete in a month. I can see the imprinting as as a company's gift or a swag, but I would never have come up with a drinking and running. <laughs> well, it's uh it's a big big market. The Hash House Harriers. Yep. Wow. So if anybody's listening out there, you need to target this market. It sounds like it's probably underserved. Yeah. I mean, if you have a, a an item for beer drinkers <laughs> and people who run and drink beer, I mean, for me, it was just, okay, I have both. This is perfect. Yeah, that, that I would not have thought of that. No. And that's, that's the thing. You have to just launch your business and get into it. And then this whole thing, um, I don't know. Did you ever write a business plan, Greg? No, I never have. I haven't either. And I know a lot of people say you have to have a business plan, but, you know, it really would not have made any sense. It would have changed within a month. The whole business plan would have changed. Yeah, it would just been, you'd have been spinning your wheels at that point because you didn't know what you didn't know. Right. I think a marketing plan is good. Mm Mm-hmm. But a business plan, I don't know that it's perfect. Unless you're trying to raise venture capital, I don't, you know, I've never done it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned um, that you were kind of beating yourself up um, because you didn't put it on Amazon. Are you on Amazon presently? (laughs) Um, Yes, sort of. Okay. Um, What happened was uh, a counterfeiter. And this is another thing. If you invent a product, you are going to get counterfeiters. They just, whether you're a big multinational company 
or, you know, a mom and pop, you're going to get counterfeiters. And that's what happened. And I've been swatting them down ever since. And then one got into Amazon and I've been fighting to get them off because I have um, some pretty strong intellectual property right now and they are violating it. So, um, so, uh, yeah, the point is the counterfeiter is still on there and I am trying to get them off. Okay. Now it seems like Amazon could come under some liability for that. Oh yes, they will. (laughs) Yes, they will. Um, I, you know, I am trying to do it the nice way, but um, it's got to it's got to come off. Mm-hmm. So, and and what I have, and I think I was telling you earlier, is that I have a trade dress. <clears throat> it's a registered trade dress, which comes under a trademark, but it protects the look of a product. So okay. it is actually more. Uh, valuable is stronger protection than a patent. Okay, Not everybody so- can get it. There's certain things that have to happen for you to get a, a, a trade dress. Not, you know, not everybody's ever heard of it. I had not heard of it and I Googled it. Um, and one of the examples was the Coca-Cola bottle. You know, it's kind of got that slim, but tapered waist look almost like it's a body and then it's a a Coke bottle. Yeah. That's a very good example. Um, Luckily for me, mine is, um, and it does protect, it has nothing to do with the use of a product. It's, I mean, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to be able to explain it well, but um, my patent agent was the one who told me about it. And he is, fantastic. He's amazing. I, I don't know what I would have done without him. And and (laughs) the way I found, this is another story of serendipity. The way I found my patent agent was because we were both scammed by the same guy. So this one guy said he was a, you know, a guru, this market, if anybody calls themselves a guru, run. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was a marketing guru and I was so exhausted at this point. I thought, okay, please, somebody help me out here. And, uh, he turned out to be a nightmare and found out that he was scamming people all across the country and including my patent agent. He got scammed by the same, we call him dirt bag. Mm-hmm. He was scammed by dirt bag. Um, but but he turned out to be it turned out to be the best thing that could ever have happened to me because of something bad. It's amazing how it kind of lines up like that sometimes. I've had really good luck and really bad luck. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it sounds like it, but your bad luck hasn't been totally catastrophic. It doesn't sound like. No, it seemed like it at the time because it took the product off the market for about a year. And then I had to spend money hiring lawyers and, you know, it just, it it, it was so stressful. As anybody who's ever been through anything like that, it's, it's very stressful. But, you know, once I figured out, okay, he has scammed a lot of people and, 
you know, this, this is, does not look good for him. Yeah. I don't name the name, but what was kind of his uh, modus operandi or his pitch? Um, well, I mean, he started off in slip and fall stuff. He was a scammer. I mean, he was a con artist. And, and you know, he just preyed on inventors because, you know, we're kind of, uh, you know, we, we, it's, it's overwhelming mm-hmm. what we have to do. You know, manufacturing and packaging and marketing distribution and ever we have to do everything ourselves. So, you know, I just it's it's terrible that that's um, that people try to scam inventors like that. But that's that was his thing, and there were I found a lot of them that yeah. he had scammed. And you're probably not the typical inventor in that you you sound like you're probably more of an extrovert, and I. I think a good number of inventors are probably introverts. Uh, that's probably true. Yeah. I don't really have anything to back that up with, but from the people that I've talked with, that seems to be the case. Well, and, and you have to, it's just like writers, a lot of writers, and I'm also a writer. Um, you know, you're, you t- a lot of writers tend to be introverted, but that's not how you're going to sell your stuff. It's the same way. Everything is about sales. Everything is about marketing. Everything. And so you just have to get over it. And I have one of my neighbors who is just invent. He didn't invent something. I don't know. He, he's He's got a product he's trying to build a business around. I don't think he actually invented it, but um, he got a little bit of investment money from somebody. And he said, oh, I need to hire this one and that one and this one. I went no, no, you do not have enough money to start hiring people. Don't do it. Learn how to do all this stuff yourself. Learn how to do it online. All of the things that are cheap um, to do are probably cheap and creative. Those are the things that are probably going to work anyway. Don't be throwing your money on ads and, you know, hiring a bunch of people. Because that's the way to just blow through your cash quickly. Did you ever try to go on Shark Tank or any other shows like it? No, because by the time Shark Tank came along, I had already financed everything myself. I was already at that point, I was actually selling quite a lot. And and now that I think back on it, it probably would have been the best time to go on Shark Tank. Because they want you when you're hot. It's like, well, yeah. now you're selling, you know, hundreds of thousands or this thing, right? So, but I just didn't think I needed it. I didn't need the money because I was already in business. So, okay. Now, I imagine there have been many highs and lows with creating your own product. Can you give us an example of each? And- you may have already given us one of the lows with the scam artist, but. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, um, as far as the shark tank, if I did it today, I would just, I don't even know if you can do this, but I would go on there to get a licensing deal from, uh, from Kevin. Okay. That's what I would really like to do. (laughs) So So if he is listening, if you're listening, Kevin, <laughs> call me. Um, yeah, what was the question? Oh, the highs. The highs. <clears throat> um, I went to, uh, well, 
as an inventor, you kind of, you go through periods of, wow, I'm really going to do this and I've got it going and people are interested to really lows and I've run out of money and, you know, nobody likes it and nobody likes me and whoa, whoa, whoa. And then I remember taking a vacation and going to Utah and I saw a rock climber with my product. And it was the only one. So I knew it was mine and it had my name on it, had Hydrosport on it. And I said, I made that. I invented that. And that's just, and it's somebody who's not a family member mm-hmm. <laughs> that I gave it to. This is a, a stranger who just went online and bought my product and they're using it. So that's, you know, that's one of the big highs, I think. Yeah, I think um, Travis Rossback of uh, Hydroflask actually said that it was one of his milestones, so to speak, that when he actually was in Paris, I think he was going to visit the Louvre or something along those lines, and he saw somebody with a, a Hydroflask, and it was in the wild. Yeah, it oh. kind of felt like he'd made it. Yeah, as he was in the Louvre? And someone was at one of those? I don't know if he was actually in the Louvre, but in in any event, he was in Paris. Oh. So. Well, that is very cool. Yeah. Um, I know I have sold most of my product internationally, actually, um, in 25 countries, not in France. Never, ever have I gotten an order from France. And I don't know why, but nope. Damn them. I've gotten one. So, so if there's any distributors or wannabe distributors in France, call us. <laughs> yeah, I don't, that's kind of strange, but yeah, I mean, I've sold a lot in the UK. Um, Australia is a big market. South Africa is a big market. Um, Guatemala was a big market. I mean, you know, that is, you know what, since you brought it up, that is one of the highs is to, um, that I've made friends all over the world. So I've had distributors, you know, and, and the thing is I never, ever signed any contracts with anybody. The only contract I ever signed was with Dirtbag, and it turned out to be the worst thing ever. And I decided, nope, you know what? We're going to, it's on a handshake. I promise you that I will, you know, depending on the size of the country, you know, I can't say you're the only person in the entire country, but, you know, if it's a small, really small country, I may only have two or three distributors. And I said, that's it. You know, depending on how big it is, I will not ever sell to anybody else. And that's it. And I kept my word. And so did they. And I've had people sell tons of these um, with no contract. And it's just all on a handshake. But yes, it was awesome just meeting all of these people from countries I've never heard of. And it's great. I could see that being a a huge uh, advantage. Now, I noticed on your LinkedIn bio that you're a volunteer at a doggy food bank. Dogs are near and dear to entrepreneurs over 40s hearts, so we thank you for that. Do you have a dog of your own? 
I have two rescue dogs of my own. Yep. Okay. So two rescues. How old are they? And what type, <laughs> what type roughly? I have mutts, of, mutts acceptable, but. Yep. I have uh, a 14 year old toodle. <laughs> That's a terrier poodle. Okay. And um, a puppy. She's about almost a year old and she's a terrier English setter mix. And, okay. and the, the tiny little poodle toodle uh, is the boss. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It usually works out that way. Yep. She's, she's the boss. She was here first, but um, even with my older dog before she still came in and she was the boss. So we just decided she, she's the boss of everyone. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you have any ideas for more products to invent or potentially something in the, the pet realm or? Yes, I do. Um, it's funny you said the pet realm. <laughs> it, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Um, and I think the next go around, I'm going to have to partner with someone because it's it's a lonely, doing it yourself is lonely and um I would just rather the next time it be with a partner and, uh, you know, share the ups and the downs and the financial part. Yeah, <laughs> I could un- understand I don't, that. I don't think this product is going to cost nearly what my the first one did. Can you talk anything about it without giving it away or is it just kind of what it is or what it will do? Maybe it would be without nope. giving it away. Okay. Nope. Fair, because, fair enough. Um, and you shouldn't, and you shouldn't do that when you're um, when you're an inventor. You shouldn't tell people until you have at least a provisional patent on it. And I think it's for legal reasons. Um, again, I'm not a I'm not an attorney, so I don't know. But it has something to do with disclosing it or something. Okay. Uh, well, I tried. So. <laughs> Good try, Greg. Thank you. So do you have a provisional patent applied for? Or? Um, I don't, and I'm not even sure if it's something that can be patented. Okay. <clears throat> but um, so that's, that's a good question for my patent agent. And uh, it's, it's a daunting task to, to invent a product and mm-hmm. see it through to the manufacturing and distribution and all of that. So I'm kind of waiting until the dust settles a little bit and I have more time to work on it. So uh, with the potential product, is it, do you think you'll manufacture it or do you think you'll try to license it? I think I will probably manufacture it. Yeah. Okay. Like I didn't really learn my lesson the first time. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with manufacturing. I've, I've heard good things about licensing as well though. So Oh, yeah, I have too. And um, I really, uh, actually, what happened was I originally was had someone that I was licensing my product to. And that was back when I had my original patent. And I was getting ready to, uh, you know, it took about a year. And all of everyone's attorneys was calling everyone else's attorneys and it just went around the table 50 million times and we we're finally ready to do it. And the company that we were going to work with went, went bankrupt. Oh, ouch. <laughs> All that work for naught. 
So I said, you know what? I don't have time to, to mess around with this for another year. I'm just going to go make it myself. And that's why I did it in the first place because I just didn't have the patience to keep waiting. And, and licensing is a, is a time consuming, you know, I, I don't know how many people you've had on who do have licensed products, but fair amount, but yeah, I mean, it's great if you can get one quickly, mm-hmm. <laughs> but otherwise it's a slow process. Yeah, that's what that is what I've heard. So you're also an author and a keynote speaker. Uh, how are you finding the time to do all these things at a high level? Well, um, I just don't sleep a lot. <laughs> um, I have always worked 12 to 14, 16 hours a day. Always. It's just I mean, I can't imagine. The thing is, and, and you know, the people that are listening, you, you know, to this uh, podcast, if you're looking to become an entrepreneur and start your own business, do something you love because you're going to be married to it for a long, long time. And sometimes people start businesses and they just go, well, I just want to make some money. Well, do something that you really are going to, you know, jump out of bed and go, wow, I can't wait to get started. So that's how I feel about writing. And and I've written three nonfiction books. I've got eight TV and film scripts, um, reality shows, <laughs> TV, a TV pilot. Um, and the speaking is also something I love doing. And I love inventing. So, I mean... You know, I really, really like what I do. So I don't know if I would ever be able to retire. Yeah. Now you mentioned the uh, money garden and I know that you've got another, another book. I wasn't aware that you have had a third out. Uh, The third book is not for sale. It's just for, um, it's sort of a calling card to get speaking work. But the first two, uh, the money garden um, and then the second book is on um, pay art patronage, so patronage of the arts, mm-hmm. and and it's a history book. Which is, it took me four years to write that book. It was very intensive research on that. It's called From the King's Court to Kickstarter: Patronage in the Modern Era. We've almost gone back to a patronage model in, in some cases, podcasting as as well, with, you know, like Patreon and other services. What book do you currently recommend to move someone to either start their business or you know, start an invention? Well, um, hmm, I don't know the name of it, but it was a. Uh, the Rich Dad Poor Dad series mm-hmm. by and Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah, and it was the one where he has he talks about the quadrant. Okay, Do you know the, which one that was? I think it might have been Rich Dad Poor Dad, and you're talking about the cash flow quadrant. Yes, cash flow quadrant. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you why it was so good for me to see that because my grandmother who. You know, she was an entrepreneur. She started her own business, but she had one store, one source of income, 
um, or two sources, really. I mean, she sold gas, but and she sold food, but she never even imagined to um, start opening new stores. And, you know, that's how a lot of, you know, mom and pops, the big, big companies that you think of now started as a little mom and pop store like that. So, but she didn't have that, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say ambition. She just, she just said, you know what? I don't ever have to work for anybody. My house is attached to my store, my business. I wake up in the morning and I see all of my friends, my customers who are my friends and I make a good living and that's it. And I'm happy. And she literally did it till the day she died. till she passed out behind the counter with a brain aneurysm. So, but so she didn't have that, you know, kind of, I'm going to do multiple businesses or franchise or anything, but what, um, the quadrant book talks about is the different levels of, you could either just run a little business and just stay there and make your living and that's it. And that's great. Or you can figure out how to expand that and have multiple streams and either franchise it or do other things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that really kind of, that book stuck with me. Um, I have not really branched out into the franchising or anything like that, but I've made a very decent living over the past 20 years um, with my product and my business. And I've started other businesses. I have a sponsorship business and, um, you know, I um, kind of have a quasi speaker bureau business. So I do other things, but um, yeah, so I would highly recommend that book. Okay. Now what's the, uh, and of course the money garden, of course the money garden. Yes. <laughs> I was waiting for you to plug that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the money garden is, is tells you step by step how to run, start and run multiple businesses. What's your uh, preferred social media? LinkedIn, because it's more geared towards business. Okay. What's the best way for someone to contact you or check you out? Well, you can go to my kind of my catch-all uh, website, which is Create for Cash, and that's Create F O R Create for Cash dot com. Um, and then you could also go to Swiggies dot com. S W I G G I E S dot com. That's the invention. And uh, those those are two. I mean, I have a, a bunch of websites, but they're all plugged on on create for cash. So you'll see them all there. Okay. Lastly, what's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? Just to never give up, um, do something you love and, and never give up. Um, keep your day job as long as you can. So you can, uh, you have money coming in you won't be stressed out until you get to the point that you can jump off the cliff completely just keep doing that. And, you know, um, a lot of people are going to say you can't do it and don't listen to that. <laughs> that sounds like great advice. I mean, I heard it a million times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Julie, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. Thank you so much. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode or suggest a guest, you can reach me at eo40show at gmail.com. That's 
EO40show at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss it or any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.